So Genesis chapter 19, this is the story of Lot's family and Sodom and Gomorrah. And before we jump into the text this morning, let's pray. God, we come before you as your people confessing our need for you. God, we are helpless and weak and sinful, God. And we need you. We need a Savior. We thank you that you um, are our Savior and our God. We pray that you are with us this morning, that your Spirit illuminates our hearts to your Word, God, that you are preeminent in all things this morning and you get the glory, God. Use this for the edification of your people as you see pleased. And we ask that you bless this day and this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. So we know, just as chapter 19, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, we know that Sodom and Gomorrah are synonymous with homosexuality. And the topic of homosexuality is rampant in our culture today. It is once frowned upon in our society, in our country. It was once illegal. And in some states, it's still technically illegal on the books, but today it is celebrated, it is promulgated, it is lifted up, um, it is on bumper stickers, it is hung high on banners. And if you oppose homosexuality today, you are labeled a bigot, a hate monger, and a Bible thumper. Many times, Christians who oppose homosexuality, they get accused of being inconsistent, just picking and choosing what commands of God that they want to obey. But as followers of Christ, we should try to be consistent in all facets of our life, hating what is evil and clinging to what is good. We should hate all sin, and most of all, we should hate our own sin, right? We shouldn't arrogantly just yell at the world to stop sinning, but we should humbly yet boldly proclaim God's righteous standard and everyone's need for grace and repentance. So when we tell others that they need to repent of their sin, we do not do so out of pride of arrogance, uh, understanding we too are sinful and we are forgiven of our sin only by the grace of God. Paul says in Romans chapter 3 verse 9, he says, What then? Are we Jews any better? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So we're not saying in and of ourselves we are better than anyone else. We are all under sin and we have nothing to boast in except for Christ and His grace upon us. And we are proclaiming His righteous standard, His righteous rule, His righteous reign, and His grace to all people, including homosexuals. You know, you might think I am somewhat crazy to preach this sermon uh, on a Sunday morning to uh, a group of solid believers at Maynardville Fellowship, and trust me, it was not planned, it was not on the schedule, but I believe uh, there are some, some good things for us in this text, there are some strong takeaways, there are examples to learn from. We know that our culture, we know the battle that is there, we know the battle that our, our children will face. We probably have co-workers, friends, and family who oppose our stance on this, and this might help us walk through that with them, how to think better about such things. And this is for God's people 
think to start thinking about how to live in a country that is being judged. Right? We know that uh, a nation that murders 70 million babies and flaunts sodomy in the in the face of God is not going to escape judgment. So there is application in Genesis 19 for us this morning. We are to call sin, sin, and to call sinners to repent. In the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, we get a glimpse of God's righteous, His holy indignation towards sin, and specifically the sin of prideful homosexuality. And that's exactly what homosexuality is. It is pride against God. These cities were overrun by wickedness. It affected the whole culture from the old to the young, every person of the city. In this story we see the depravity of man greatly manifested. It is greatly on display. And it is true that you become what you worship. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah, they worship themselves and the desires of their flesh. They are sexual deviants and they have given up natural affections for unnatural affections. And we see that term throughout Scripture when referring to homosexuality as an unnatural affection. God made man and woman in the garden and God instituted marriage between male and female. That is how God designed um, His creation, the created order, husband and wife, that is the building block of civilization. God created marriage as a holy union. He commands husband and wife to be fruitful and to multiply. So not only can homosexuals never be married in the eyes of God, they can never be fruitful and produce children. It is a dead, lifeless, fruitless venture that is in no way blessed by God. And God created families as a foundational unit of society, and marriage between a man and a woman is the cornerstone of the family. So God uses marriage, we know this, as a picture of the gospel. A husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church and laid down his life for his wife as Christ laid down his life for his bride. So marriage is a picture of the gospel. And God has created the institution of marriage to portray who He is, His nature, His love for His bride. And He sees that marriage is good. So when people distort something that God has made holy, when people distort something that God has put His image on, why do you think God hates murder so much? It's because an image bearer is being killed. His image is being destroyed. So in the context of marriage, God's image, His imprint is made on it. He has made it holy. And He has used this institution to display His character, His nature, His love, His relationship between Him and His people. So... When people twist and distort something God has made holy, that He has put His mark on, it is an abomination to God. And His anger burns against such wickedness. The picture God created to represent Christ and His church has been perverted by Sodom and by Gomorrah, and it's been perverted in our land today. In our country, homosexuality has... uh, 
grown, that pervasive ideology has flourished and spread, and it has even gained the status of marriage in our country. And it's interesting how the term gay pride has been coined in our culture. Gay pride, the banners, the rainbows, right? The rainbow is God's sign to know that He was not going to flood the earth again and destroy it. And why did God destroy the earth? For rampant immorality, for sin. Similar sin as to what the gay pride banner is, is promulgating. This, this rainbow, they are distorting God's promise. And God will not be mocked. They are so proud. They are flamboyant. They are bold. And they have no shame. It's interesting that Ezekiel 16.49 says the iniquity of Sodom and Gomorrah. Does anyone know what Ezekiel says the iniquity of Sodom and Gomorrah is? Pride. It is prideful to declare that you know what is better than God in His created order. It is prideful to go against His ordinance of marriage. God is the definer of all things. God is the definer of marriage, and He has declared it between one man and one woman. So by definition, there is no such thing as same-sex marriage. Douglas Wilson rightly calls it same-sex mirage. It is a mirage. It is an illusion. It is a counterfeit, a fake, and a lie. The culture at large accepts this sinful homosexual lifestyle. And what's even worse, it's infiltrating our churches. There has been this huge agenda to push gay Christianity or this queer theology as they have coined it. They're saying that being gay and Christian is compatible. And people who push that narrative are liars. We know. And, and the truth of God is not in them. God's Word is clear on this matter as we will look at today. But this ideology isn't only infiltrating a few liberal denominations. And it's not just the Episcopalians or uh, the Anglicans. But this has permeated across American Christianity and has even made its way into some Reformed circles. And I'm not just talking about big evangelicalism, big even the big names that we know that have gone woke, like Tim Keller and the Gospel Coalition, or Mark Dever and the Nine Marxists. Right? We know that. It's in this region. It's in Reformed Baptist churches that we know of. So this isn't something that's just far off out into the culture that we don't have to worry about. This is next door. This is, these are things that our children are going to have to deal with in the church. This is for the future generations. We might be okay right now in our lifetime, but we're thinking about our children and our children's children. These people pushing this agenda claim that God is loving and all accepting and He has created homosexuals just the way they are and that they can identify as gay and Christian at the same time. Now you have some, there's different flavors of this, you have some in the PCA, the, the Revoice Conference, the Presbyterians who claim to be Reformed, they have this conference that has, is pushing you can be Christian and gay just don't act sexually upon it. They encourage to have emotional relationships uh, with for homosexuals to have emotional relationships with straight men. They encourage uh, 
a, a, a gay man to move in with a married couple and have this intimate relationship with the married husband. I've watched an, an interview where this gay youth pastor did that and they were talking about it and it basically sounded like the, the husband and the gay youth pastor became a gay relationship. This is a perversion. This is sounds crazy, but this is in circles, conferences that you all have been to. This is not just out on the West Coast or in Europe. This is in East Tennessee. So these people have created a God in their own image, one who accepts their perversion, and this is not worship of the God of Scripture. This is a God made in their own image. In no way, shape, or form is homosexuality compatible with the Christian life. It is an abominable sin that the Lord is very clear about throughout the entirety of Scripture, throughout Old Testament and throughout New Testament. God's standard is the same from eternity to eternity. It's not like we have a different God in the Old Testament and this softer, gentler God in the New Testament. God is immutable. He's unchanging. He is in the heavens and He does as He pleases. And He is not mocked. His standard does not change. And we will see that in Genesis chapter 19. So before we jump into the text, let's do a little background to the context of Genesis and what is leading up to this story. We know that Abraham is called out by God to depart from his family, to go into a land um, different, set apart from his kindred. Initially, Lot, Abraham's nephew, goes with Abraham, but Abraham and Lot mutually part ways, and Lot settles in the city of Sodom. And in chapter 18, messengers of the Lord, which are angels, come to Abraham and Sarah to tell them that in their old age they will have a son, and from Abraham will come a great nation. In chapter 12, it is promised that Abraham will be the father of a great nation and all the nations of the world, of the earth, will be blessed through him. So when the angels left Abraham, they went towards Sodom. And the Lord told Abraham of the coming destruction that he had for Sodom and Gomorrah. The Lord says, the cry of Sodom is great and their sin is very grievous. What is meant when it says their cry was great and that their sin was grievous? It means that they were famous for their sin. They were known throughout the region as Sodomites. This was their reputation. This is what they were known for. It was rampant and boasted about and known throughout the region. And I'll tell you this, when America legalized gay marriage... It was a worldwide news. That stench, it was a, a bitter odor. It flew in the face of God. And it was worldwide news. At the time when they passed Obergefell in the Supreme Court, I was in Malaysia, a Muslim country, and it made news out there. They were stunned that America, a Christian nation, legalized gay marriage. Muslims, uh, it, they... Outlaw gay marriage. It's not even a, a thinkable thing. So in that country, it was outlawed. It was illegal. And America, a Christian nation, legalized it. It was worldwide news. They were shocked. America's sin is great and very grievous before the eyes of God. 
So because of Sodom and Gomorrah's great reputation of sin, the Lord sends His angels into the city knowing that He will only find immorality. Remember, Abraham knows that God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah for their wickedness, and he tries to cut a deal with God. And I'm sure you all can remember this. Abraham tries to, to say, you know, Surely you will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. So, he says, if there be 50 righteous men, surely you won't destroy the city. And the Lord agrees. If he finds 50 righteous people in Sodom, he will spare the whole city. And of course, we know that there were not 50 righteous people in Sodom. So Abraham pleads for the number to be reduced to 45, and then 40, and then 30, then 20, and 10. And still, not even 10 righteous people were found in Sodom. Peter, in the New Testament, in in 2 Peter, he actually calls Lot righteous. And even the righteous in this story is found guilty of grievous sin. Staying in the cesspool of the culture negatively impacts even the righteous. So, in our text, Genesis 19, let's start in verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. So Lot sees the two angels enter Sodom at evening, and he comes out to meet them, and he implores them to come to his house and eat and save the night. Why do you think he did that? He knew exactly the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah. He knew what would happen to these angels if they stayed out on the street in the town square. He knew the heart and the wickedness of the people and he begs the angels to come abide in his house and they eventually do. But notice what happens before they can even lay down for the night in verse 4. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, and all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. So before they can even lay down for the night, all the men of the city came to the house so that they could know the angels. Notice how widespread the homosexuality of Sodom is. First, it says the men of the city. Then it says both old and young. It says all the people to the very last man. Every single man in the city was sexually immoral and specifically homosexual. Lot is the only man in the city, not a sodomite. And it says the men wanted the angels brought out so that they may know them. Right? We know what that means throughout Genesis. That word is used, that term um, to know Adam uses 
Adam or, or Moses uses writing Genesis to describe how Adam knew Eve, right? Adam knew Eve and they had a child. So you get a picture of exactly what the men wanted to do to the angels. And in verse 6, Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. So for a split second, Lot shows some bravery here, right? He... He gets out of the house. He shuts the door and begs with the people not to act so wickedly. He knew exactly what the man wanted to do to the angels. But his bravery soon turned to disgusting cowardice when he offers his two virgin daughters to the mob as a replacement. He says, do whatever you want with them, but don't do anything to my guests. And I know no man in here can imagine doing what Lot just did. How wicked, how perverse. We see the impact already of the culture upon Lot. Lot is described as a righteous man in 2 Peter, but he is obviously corrupted and influenced by his environment. He offers his own daughters to be raped. The immorality of the culture had pervaded Lot and his family. We even see later After they have escaped this destruction, that Lot's daughter gets their father drunk and they both have sons by him. These are things we cannot even imagine. The culture was so wicked, it even had the one righteous family committing repulsive sins. You might say, how can Lot be considered righteous? Peter calls him righteous in the New Testament. How can he be considered righteous when we read these sins that he has committed? We know that Lot, he was included into the covenant God made with Abraham. Lot was treated as a son of Abraham and by faith he is included into the covenant. Likewise, like Like Lot, we have grievous sin. It might not look like it looks in the story here, but if we had a book of our own sin and it was passed around this morning, we want to hide our faces in shame. Or if we had a a projector and all of our sins throughout our life were projected on this TV screen this morning, we would hit the door. All of our sin is embarrassing, wicked, and grotesque before the eyes of God. But by faith, we are included into the covenant and declared righteous by the sufficient work of Christ. Turning from our sin, repenting of our sin, and trusting in Christ alone for our salvation. And all this is not to say that all sin is equal, or that all sin has the same punishment, but all sin is shameful and makes us guilty before a holy God. And even Abraham, Father Abraham, committed Grievous sin. We see that he gave his wife away, not once, but twice, in fear for his own life. We all are sinful, and the only way any of us can be made right is to put our faith in Jesus, who imputes his righteousness to our accounts. And in verse 9, it says, But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man, 
Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great. So they wore themselves out, wore themselves out groping for the door. So notice... The crowd of men, they were not interested in lost daughters whatsoever. Their homosexuality was so pervasive, they were bent on it. They were having no other way. They pushed against Lot and tried to break down the door to have their way with the, with the angels. But it says the angels pulled Lot back in the house, shut the door, and smote the men of Sodom. They struck them with blindness, both old and young, both small and great. And in verse 12, Then the men said to Lot, the men being the messengers, the angels, Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone that you have in the city? Bring them out of this place. For we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against His people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, sons-in-law were, were men set aside to eventually marry his daughters. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. So the angels tell Lot to round up his family, right? Destruction is coming. Get out. The outcry of the city is so great before God, He is going to rain fire down upon the cities. And Lot tries, he, he obeys the, the angel's implorement, and he tries to get his sons-in-law to get up and escape the destruction, but they thought Lot was joking. Much like the days of Noah, when Noah is preaching the gospel and building the ark, the fools made fun of him. They mocked him and did not take heed of the coming destruction. The blood is not on our hands when we are declaring the coming judgment and fools will not flee from the wrath to come. Verse 15, As morning dawned, the angels, uh, as morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up! Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, and the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. So the next morning, the angels tell Lot to take his wife and his two daughters and flee, or they too will be consumed. The righteous would be destroyed with the wicked if they did not flee. It says Lot lingered and hesitated. Could you imagine lingering and hesitating when the angels of the Lord are at your doorstep saying, destruction is coming, these cities are going to be destroyed, and we're going to hesitate and linger? But the angels grabbed him and his family and took them out of the city. And Scripture tells us the Lord was being merciful to Lot. 
Truth be told, Lot and his family deserved to die in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. But God had mercy on him. Truth be told, we deserve to die destructive deaths in our sin. But by God's grace, he has mercy on us. And when they go out of the city, God commands them not to even look back at the city. Now, this might be spiritualizing the text a little bit, but the sentiment is true. This principle is true. This is a good picture of how believers should not look back at the desires of the flesh, the desires um, of their sin that God has saved them from. We are commanded to walk in the newness of life, not returning like a dog to its vomit. Right? We are called to flee from sin, flee from every uh, sight of sin, every temptation of sin. Don't look back or dabble in it. We are new creations in Christ Jesus. And if you will... Look further down in the text, starting in verse 24. Verse 24, Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Where did that sulfur and that fire come from? It came from the Lord out of heaven. He's not some pie in the sky, soft, gentle, grandfather, Santa Claus, white-bearded God. This is a God, a mighty God, a God of vengeance who will punish sin. And not only the sin of sodomy, but your sin. Either on the cross, on His Son, or on you in eternity in hell. So, verse 24, The Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and He overthrew those cities. Of course He did. No one can stand in the might of God. He overthrew those cities and the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities. And what grew on the ground? But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. This is a picture of God's hatred towards sin, and specifically the sin of homosexuality. He rained upon Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone, sulfur, and fire from heaven. Every inhabitant of the cities were destroyed for their wicked ways, for their pride against God, for their pride of homosexuality against God. There was no shame in those people. They had visitors. And every man of the city tried to rape those visitors. There was no shame in those people. They were boldly and proudly demonstrating their sin. And remember, Ezekiel 16 calls the sin of Sodom pride. They were destroyed for their pride. And that's exactly what homosexuality is. It is prideful to think that you know better than God, better than the way He created things to be, and they reaped what they sowed, and they were destroyed. And we notice that Lot's wife disobeyed the command of the Lord. And we might sometimes in our flesh think, that, wow, that's kind of harsh, right? To Turn Lot's wife into a pillar of salt just for looking back against the, the city? Well, guess what? That's what we all deserve. We all deserve this day to be pillars of salt for breaking one command of God. This wasn't unjust. This is justice. You don't want justice upon you. 
But Lot's wife disobeyed the command of God not to look back to the city, and she became a pillar of salt on the spot. We know that Lot and his wife were hesitant in the first place to leave the city. And I believe Lot's wife was having a hard time deserting what she had made her home and the lifestyle that she had come accustomed to. The, the culture had gripped her. The city had a hold of her. And like the Israelites being rescued out of Egypt, they started complaining against God and Moses that they had it better off in Egypt as slaves and free men under God. Followers of God are not supposed to be like that. We're not supposed to revert and look back. Followers of God are to forsake their sinful past, not to look back and desire the life the Lord has rescued them from, but to walk in the victorious life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. Hebrews 10, 39 says this of the people of God, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So we, the people of God, are not to shrink back. That's all a characteristic of a child of God. We are not to shrink back into destruction, but we are those who have faith. Faith is a gift from above, as Ephesians 2.8 tells us. We are those who have received the gift of faith and our souls are preserved. Christ preserves us. He holds us fast. He keeps us in His hand. So the Lord has saved us. The Lord has set us apart and we are not to return to the desires of sinful lusts of our flesh. In verse 27 And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. You can picture that scene right there. Right? The, remember when Gatlinburg was set on fire a few years ago? That scene, the smoke of those, those billowing mountains, that was nothing compared to what Abraham woke up and saw that day. Verse 29, so it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. So Abraham gets up in the morning, sees God's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he sees the smoke and it looks like a furnace, the smoke from a furnace. And notice why it says Lot was spared. Does anyone see it in the text? Why was Lot spared? Because God remembered Abraham. God remembered the covenant He made with Abraham in Genesis 12. Lot was saved because he was chosen by God to be included into the eternal covenant that God made with Abraham. And by faith in Christ, we too are included into this same eternal covenant. Did Lot deserve to be saved? Do we deserve to be saved? Does anyone deserve to be saved? Of course not. But the Lord is merciful. And those who have entered into this covenant by faith, there's no more condemnation for them. Jesus has took that condemnation upon Himself on the cross. There is now therefore no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And guess what? Everyone can find that 
Same mercy. Homosexuals included. They need to do what everyone needs to do. Repent of their sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ in full submission. So there are some common objections to the biblical stance on homosexuality. And I would like to walk through some of those objections to help us think through uh, some things that might come up in our conversations. Some issues that we might need to educate our children one day about. And co-workers, you name it. This is a, a topic that is not going away and we need to be prepared for. So... Some common objections that we're going to walk through. First, in this movement today where we, call, where we see this compatible home, um, where they're trying to say homosexuality and Christianity is compatible, they say that it's just the Mosaic law that condemns homosexuality. And we Christians don't follow that Mosaic law anymore. They would say the the Mosaic Law also says not to wear mixed fabric on your clothing, not to eat pork or shellfish, among some other things that we do not practice today. They accuse us of being inconsistent in picking and choosing. First off, this argument that homosexuality is only condemned in the Mosaic Law is completely false. We have uh, examples that predate the Mosaic Law and that come after the Mosaic Law. And this story that we just read, Sodom and Gomorrah, guess what? When did that take place in history? That was before the Mosaic Law was ever given, and yet Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed for their homosexual lifestyles. But also, let's look at what the Mosaic Law does say about homosexuality. Leviticus 18.22 says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Leviticus 20.13, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. So it is very clear that God has declared homosexuality an abomination. The definition of an abomination is a thing that causes disgust or hatred. Those are the feelings that God has towards sodomy. Disgust and hatred. Secondly, the argument that if we oppose homosexuality, we should also oppose eating pork and wearing mixed fabrics and things like that. That shows that these people do not understand Scripture, which is clear and evident, even with the case that they are trying to make. But they do not know how to exposit or divide or understand Scripture. The law is understood in three categories. We have the, the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the judicial law. So those three elements are found in the Mosaic Law. The moral law, the ceremonial law, and the judicial law. The moral law is transcendent for all of human history. The moral law is for all people, all time, everywhere. You shall not murder. Right. A lot of these things we know by birth. And a lot of these things are also described you know, in the Ten Commandments, for example. You shall not murder, you shall not lie, you shall not covenant, you shall not commit adultery. And homosexuality falls under the moral law. A man shall not lay with a man, and a woman shall not lay with a woman. It is an abomination. right? If it's an abomination... It definitely falls under the moral law. In no place, culture, or era are any of these things acceptable. In no way, shape, or form is homosexuality condoned by God in any part of the Scripture. Just as murdering, 
thieving, lying. None of these things are accepted by God, neither is homosexuality. And there is a moral aspect to murder, right? Murdering the, the image of God. There is a moral aspect to perverting God's holy institution of marriage. Right? His image is on that. There's a moral aspect to stealing from your neighbor. There isn't necessarily a moral aspect to eating pork or shellfish. And that leads us to the ceremonial law. This, this is where the, the homosexual advocate will try to trip you up. This includes things, the ceremonial law includes things like uh, dress code, how, to, how the Israelites should cut their hair, what to eat, and the sacrificial system. What we need to understand is much of the ceremonial law was not really a matter of morality, but it was to set the Israelites apart from pagan nations. They acted differently, they looked differently, they smelled differently, and they ate differently. Right? They were a circumcised people. Right? That's part of the ceremonial law. No other nation was circumcised. It was to set them apart. And what we know from Scripture is that the ceremonial law has been fulfilled by Christ. We know Hebrews describes that very well and calls Jesus the, the last sacrifice once for all. So it's not that Christians have purposefully neglected the cer- ceremonial law, but we have rightly understood it, that it has been fulfilled by Christ. It has d- been done away with, right? We're not ethnic Jews under the ceremonial law. Therefore, we do not practice these things anymore. The old covenant is abolished. We can eat pork. We can wear mixed fabrics. We can eat lobster and shrimp. Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial law completely as He fulfilled the entire law completely, which was needed for our salvation. And there is nothing that we could add or or do to obtain the ceremonial law. It is gone. And then we come to the judicial law. So we've went through moral law, we've went through ceremonial law, and now we've come to judicial law. The Israel lost the power, the, the authority to implement judicial law when Israel fell to control of other nations. Right? Judicial law means punitive law, uh, punishing crimes. They ceased to be a theocracy and they lost their own government. They lost judicial power and never re- regained it. Think about it. Who did the Jews have to appeal to when they wanted to kill Jesus. They couldn't just kill him themselves. They had to appeal to the Romans to get it done. They did not have that authority, the judicial authority anymore. However, we know that the judicial law of God is right and good, and God knows what is best and how to punish sins in society. So there is good, healthy debate among uh, good brothers, reformed brothers, on whether or not we should follow the judicial law to a T, or if we should just take some principles from the judicial law and apply them to our modern setting. We should, at the very least, try to take the true spirit of the judicial law and do our best to apply it in our society today. But the Homosexuality, the act, the sin the, of homosexuality itself falls under the moral law. It's an abomination. It is a, a distortion of God's image. But punishment for such sin as homosexuality is found in the judicial law. So there could be 
some healthy debate, some healthy conversation on what the punishment for homosexuality should be. But there's absolutely no debate that it is an abominable sin breaking God's moral law. The law that stands over every single person from eternity to eternity. Another objection that you get is that um, condemnation of the, of the homosexual lifestyle is only found in the Old Testament. That it's not really found in the New Testament and that it was never talked about by Jesus. Why is that funny? Well, we can clue them in on something. Jesus is the God in the Old Testament. He was there when Sodom was destroyed. He was there when the law was given to Moses. And the same law that condemns homosexuality and calls it an abomination. Remember in the book of John, speaking to the Pharisees, he says, Before Abraham was, I am. That refers back to the burning bush when Yahweh reveals himself to Moses. Moses says, Who are you? He says, I am that I am. Jesus is saying, That is me. I am Yahweh. I am the same God of both Testaments. So, it is not recorded that he directly spoke about homosexuality in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but he did speak about marriage. Right? And he defined marriage only one way. The way that we find it in Genesis 1 and 2 between one man and one woman. Jesus by no means recognizes homosexuality as anything other than an abomination. And it's also a misconception, right, that all sins are the same. Yes, it is true that if you break one commandment, it's as if you have broken them all. All sin leads to death, but in the same breath, not all sins are deemed equal. Some sins have greater punishment than others. Even in the text that we read today, Sodom and Gomorrah, they are used. We've seen, walking through Matthew, they are used as, as an example. Jesus tells the generation of his day that it will be better for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than it will be for the, this generation who has rejected Christ and put him to death. And there is, a, there is a degree of knowledge and revelation there that you are held responsible for the knowledge, for the revelation that you have. Guess what? There's been no one in any time of history that has had greater revelation than you. We have the full inspired canon of Scripture at our fingertips. We have no excuses. We have uh, freedom to worship. We have freedom to to have Bibles. We have freedom to preach and teach. There is no excuse. So take the warning of Sodom and Gomorrah and you see their destruction. Guess what? There could be an even greater judgment and destruction upon us who knew better and Christians who led homosexuals to believe that they were okay in their sin. And Jesus says in John 19.11, He who delivered me over to you, speaking to Pilate, He who delivered me over to you has a greater sin. So some sin is greater than others. And it would be foolish to say that stealing a piece of candy is equal to murdering someone. 
Homosexuality is a sin that God describes as an abomination. His hatred rages against it. And we clearly see that picture in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. There is nothing redeeming about homosexuality. There is nothing fruitful about homosexuality. It is a plague to humanity and it is an assault to God's created order. It is a perversion of God's holy union of marriage and He has nothing for it but wrath. And we also see the argument that it's not addressed in the New Testament, but Paul addresses it quite a bit. Paul writes through inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 27. Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And what are these dishonorable passions God gave them over to? For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. Homosexuality is a manifestation of total depravity. Those who fall into um, the homosexual lifestyle have changed the truth of God into a light and have worshipped themselves instead of God, their Creator. They reject how God created them and they reject what God says about them and they are proudly arrogant in their sin. It says that God turned them over. God has given them up to their sin. Women desired women and men desired men. And I believe Paul is describing the final step of destruction in a society. Societies will receive the wrath of God for practicing and condoning sodomite lifestyles. And you see that in our nation, right? You see the degradation. We see that Overton window moving. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Overton window. The Overton window is this idea, it's kind of like this moral litmus test. You have this window uh, of, of what the majority sees as right and moral. And you see things being implemented and strategically placed to try to move the window further left and change the the moral compass of a culture. So for example, we have this Overton window in the 90s. It was polled and a crazy amount, 80 to 90% of Americans believed homosexuality was wrong and that there should not be gay marriage. Then we see the shift, right? We see Media, we see politics, we see movies and television slipping these things in. Oh, it's no big deal. It's just a token gay character in your child's TV show or your family's favorite show. And you become slowly, it's like that, that, that frog cooked in a slow boiled water, right? He doesn't even notice he's getting boiled until then. At some point, he's cooked, right? So this window is slowly desensitizing us, numbing us, shifting our morality as a culture. And then you get presidents like Obama, who pushed it further and further and further in his last term, has the Supreme Court legalized gay marriage. He, he puts uh, Supreme Court justices in place that will get this through. And now we are a nation. So I said back in the 90s, 
the majority of, of Americans thought it was wrong, and now it is celebrated. Majorities of Americans think homosexuals should have this right, and that it is good, and that it is loving. So we must guard against this. We must be aware of how the enemy is sneaking things in, little things, on our phones, on our computers, on, on our radios, in our conversations, our co-workers. What are we being compromised with? What are we allowing into our homes, into our minds, into our hearts, and we don't even realize it. There is a strategy that is after you, your families, and your children. Guard against it. It is your duty. Guard your soul. Guard your brother and sister's soul in Christ. Guard your wife's soul. Guard your children's soul. That is who you are to be in Christ. So, we see... Paul addresses head-on in Romans 1. We also see him condemn this lifestyle in 1 Timothy 1, 9 and 10. He says, Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So here Paul identifies homosexuality as lawlessness and disobedience practiced by ungodly, unholy, profane sinners. And homosexuality is lumped in with the likes of murderers, whoremongers, enslavers, and liars. And Paul says these things are contrary to sound doctrine. And Homosexual Christianity is contrary to sound doctrine. One argument that comes up a lot, right, is that God would never condemn a loving, monogamous, homosexual relationship. They, they say He might uh, condemn a promiscuous homosexual relationship that has many partners, but He would never condemn a loving, committed, homosexual, monogamous relationship. That is an absolute lie and has no biblical support. God hates any trace of homosexual behavior. God hates effeminacy. And He has nothing positive to say about it whatsoever. And let's address the argument that, that God would never condemn a loving relationship. Well, who gets to define love? Does the culture define love? No. Like all things, God gets to define everything. And He defines what love is. For something to be truly loving, truly good, truly right, it has to be done the correct, the correct way for the right reason. And the only right reason is for the glory of God. True love reflects the nature of God Himself. So is a homosexual's love for each other for the glory of God? No. Their quote-unquote love is not actually love at all, but a perversion of love. It is a fake. It is a mirage. God defines what is love, what is good, what is right, and homosexual relationships in no way reflects the glory of God or comes close to God's righteous standard of love. And Paul, again in 1 Corinthians 6, 
9 and 11, through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And here's some hope right here. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So Paul describes men who practice homosexuality as those who do not enter the kingdom of God. Now there is a long list of sins there. And none of those inherit the kingdom of God. But notice this. In that long list of sins, there's not agendas pushing murdering Christianity or or, or pushing drunkard Christianity or pushing lying, thieving, fornicating Christianity. How foolish would it be, right, to identify as a murdering Christian or a thieving Christian or a pedophile Christian? How much sense would that make? True Christians hate their sin and are not proud of it. You cannot identify as a homosexual and be a Christian. We repent of our sin. We are ashamed of it. We crucify it. We mortify it. And we desire to be free from it forever. Like Paul in Romans 7 desires to be out of this body of sin and in his glorified body, face to face with the Lord. That's what we desire. That's what our hearts want. We don't want to identify with our sin any longer. And that's the agenda, is to proudly be gay and Christian at the same time. We cannot identify with our sin. We identify with Christ. It's an oxymoron. No homosexual will inherit the kingdom of God. But there is hope in this passage, right? We read it. Paul is talking to Christians here. People who have been washed and sanctified by the blood of Christ. And he says, And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the power of our God. So you can come to the conclusion here that he is writing to some people who were once homosexuals. And such were some of you. The call to all sinners is the same. Be born again, be washed, be sanctified, be justified by Christ and His Spirit. If a homosexual gets saved, they don't identify as a homosexual any longer. They repent of their sin. They hate it. They don't identify with it any longer. They are new creations. They are new creatures in Christ Jesus. And they do not look back at their Sodom and their Gomorrah. They do not look back at their homosexual lifestyle and identify with it any longer. It's something that was paid for at the cross and buried in the grave, never to be resurrected again. I've heard this argument as well from homosexual advocates that they say, well, what if we prove that homosexuality is genetic, that you are born that way, that there is a gene? And trust me, they've been trying to do this and there's probably even some people out there who says that they have found it. But first off, that will never be true. There is no gay gene. You might get some paid-off scientist who might... Uh, take some dollars and say that they have found a gay gene, but you can trust as much as you can trust Fauci's COVID research, right? But if you want to enter into their hypothetical question, I don't think you would be necessarily out of bounds to, to do so. So in their hypothetical question, if a homosexual gene was found, 
it would in no way, shape, or form change our perspective on the matter. No more would it change our perspective if someone found a a serial killer gene. Just because someone has a gene to be a serial killer, we wouldn't say it's okay for that person to go around killing people just because it's in their genetic makeup. No one would condone that. So if a, a homosexual has homosexual genes, the call of the gospel is the same. Be born again. Repent of your sin and believe in Jesus. We are all born in sin. We all have original sin. Our flesh is fallen and we need to be born again. Now, they will never truly find a homosexual gene and it wouldn't matter if they did. Paul isn't the only one in the New Testament to address this topic. Jude, the brother of Jesus, in his book in verse 7 says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah... And the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So Jude identifies the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah as sexual immorality and pursuit of unnatural desire. And he says they are an example. They are an example for us. That if you live such a lifestyle or that you condone that and hold people's hand in that relationship, in that lifestyle, if you promote it and support it, or you partake in it, your destination is hell fire. That's where the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah reside today, eternal fire. So tell me, how is homosexuality compatible with Christianity? And let me ask another question. Who is more loving Is it the person who tells the homosexual that they are just fine how they are? How they are accepted by God in their sin? Or the person who stands on God's word and tells them the punishment and the rebellion of their sin against God? Who is more loving? Of course, it's the person who tells the truth. The one who tells them... The homosexuals are not accepted by God in their sin. They must repent. God will change a homosexual, but God will not honor and call someone his child who wallows in that sin. A truly saved life is regenerate and changed from the inside out and is not returning like a dog to its vomit. So it is more loving to tell homosexuals the truth than to coddle them like we are seeing in mainstream Christianity today. Those who are coddling and telling Christian, or homosexuals that they're accepted as they are as a gay Christian are leading the homosexual hand in hand on the path to hell. We should lovingly, boldly, and humbly preach the gospel to homosexuals and every type of sinner. It's not, I'm not trying to preach an unbalanced sermon right, about homosexuality. All sin is guilty before God and is condemned. My sin is the worst sin that I know of. right? But this is a topic in our culture that must be addressed and we must stand on truth and we hate our sin we don't celebrate our sin we want to crucify and mortify our sin understanding that Christ has paid for it and we do not want to trample underfoot the son of God so 
Again, this sermon was not necessarily planned, but I do think it's relevant. And there's a battle before us, a battle in our culture, a battle for our families, and a battle locally, right? What happened at Union County High School a month or so ago? You had a boy run as homecoming queen. That, that's right next door. This is here in Maynardville, Tennessee, right? If you look at a map, where would you pick to live other than East Tennessee? Probably nowhere. When it comes to conservatism in red states, and even here in rural Union County, we have this ideology, and it is allowed. No one stood up to stop it. But I want us to remember the example of Lot, the example of his life. He is a very good case study for us today. He lived in a perverted culture, and though he and his family did not participate in the predominant sin of the culture, the, the culture still influenced him. They were still influenced and polluted by their environment. The effect of the culture on Lot's family was seen in this story. By Lot offering his daughters to the mob, Lot looking back and desiring Sodom, which killed her, and Lot's daughters who schemed and had children by their own father. The homosexual woke agenda, and that's what it is. This homosexual, LGBTQ+, transgender, woke, CRT, Marxism, it's all the fruit of the same evil root. It is all lumped together. This homosexual woke agenda is after our families and our children. We must not give in to the culture's normalization of sin, that window that they have shifted in our culture. We must guard our families from this agenda. And know that takes a very intentional effort. You, we might think that we're doing really good jobs. That, we're, that we are doing great as parents, as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. But what is sneaking through? What are we desensitized to? Right? I know personally, in my hometown, great family friend homeschooled their children all the way through. Right? Solid Christian family in the SBC church. Their middle daughter... 17 years old, comes out as a lesbian. How does that happen? That's a, that is a good Christian family. Goes to church, homeschooled. How does that happen? What have we become desensitized to? What have we let in our homes? What are we allowing? Where are we compromised? We are influenced in ways we don't even realize. And homosexuality has infiltrated every level of our culture. We see it in our government. We see it in our government schools. We see it in our televisions, our movies, our politics, and our culture at large. There is a very intentional effort to put things before our noses without us even realizing it. And it's been happening for decades. We are numb. And like Lot's family became numb and succumbed to the culture. Right? You hear that homosexuality doesn't hurt anybody, right? This old libertarian mantra, just let people do what they do, it's not hurting anybody. Well, we see that homosexuality is a society killer. That Romans 1 example uh, of God turning them over to those desires, the depraved, darkened mind. It is not fruitful. If you live it out consistently, there is no life, there is no children. It is an unfruitful desert, and it is not 
glorifying to God. It is a distortion of the image he has made of Christ and his church in the ordinance of marriage. So it affected Lot's family. It will affect our families if we do not faithfully guard against these attacks. And we must be strategic in this battle, aware and strategic, right? We, again, have to know what is coming in to our eyes, our hearts, our children's eyes, our hearts, and hearts. Another principle which we should know from the story, don't move to Sodom. And if you find yourself living in Sodom, get the heck out. That's what Keone had to tell someone in Hawaii who was trying to, to keep him and his family from moving here to Tennessee. Keone said, what would have happened to Lot and his family if they stayed in Sodom? Now again, I'm not saying that this is the promised land, right? I just gave the, the example of what's happening in, in the high school. But if you pick on a map, Hawaii, liberal state, COVID, lockdowns, mandates, liberal politicians, no freedoms, or you pick somewhere on the map like Maynardville, I'm picking Maynardville every time, and I think we should encourage our brothers and sisters, our loved ones that we know who are in those situations, to move, flee. It is okay to run to the hills in these moments. Jesus tells the Jews, the Christians, who are going to be in Jerusalem when, when the temple is destroyed in 70 AD, He says, when you see the signs of the times, run to the hills. There's nothing wrong with that. It's not, it's not being coward. It's living to fight another day. It's being strategic in the battle. So we should flee cultures that want to destroy our children and move to the best possible areas to raise our family for the kingdom of God. And we should be in the godless system as little as possible and protect your family from the influence of the homosexual agenda and all the woke agendas of the world. Guard what we watch, what we read, what we listen to. If we don't indoctrinate our children, the world will. It is a calculated attack by the enemy, and it, it is, it's such a calculated attack that the American church has accepted this abomination. We have to prepare our children for the battle that is to come in their lifetime, this is not going away. This is uh, an issue that is going to come for generations, our children and our children's children. Truth is truth, and when we stand on Scripture alone for our standard, we stand on God's Word. We stand on who God says we are and His created order and the way His people are to live. And the call of the gospel is the same for all people. Repent of your sins and put your faith in the sufficient life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That is the only way anyone can be saved and set free from the desires of the flesh. And that brings us to the table this morning. Each week we take from the Lord's table together, recommit, recommitting ourselves to the Lord Remembering His life, death, resurrection, His ascension, His rule and reign over us, and that we are under Him and we are to obey and submit to Him. We recommit to our covenant relationship with one another. And we come this morning knowing that we are not perfect. This is not a self-righteous sermon that is looking down on, on certain sins. This is us as a people hating our own sin. 
and upholding the righteous standard of God. And we examine one another and ourselves that if there be any sin among us, we repent of it. We repent of any known sin and we repent of any unknown sin. We ask God to illuminate to our minds sins that we are not even cognitive of. We ask to be to have a clean, a, a, a pure conscience, a sensitive conscience. We ask not to be desensitized and, and numb. We ask where our blind spots are as parents, as mothers, as children. We have all been given roles and duties under God. And we have the command to fulfill those duties. Repent where we have failed. Turn to Christ. He is our only hope. We cannot do it in our own strength. It is in Him and it is in Him alone. So in Maynardville Fellowship, we extend the table to our covenant members and we extend the table to members of other churches that are in good standing and in regular attendance and have confirmation by a member of Maynardville Fellowship. If you do not fit in those categories today, please refrain from the table, but it is not an exclusion. It is an invitation to come, ask questions, learn about our, our view of church membership, of the covenant, and of communion, and it is an invitation to come learn and be a part of us. But we will go to the Lord in prayer as we prepare our hearts to partake of Christ this morning. God, we thank you for who you are, your nature, God, your holiness, and your mercy towards us, God, that we deserve the pit, God. We deserve all wrath, all destruction, God. We thank you that our sin was placed in Christ, God. We don't boast in ourselves. We don't say that you chose us in Christ because of anything good in us. It was by grace and grace alone. It was your mercy upon us that Christ suffered the wrath that we deserve. Father, we confess, God, our need for you as we come to the table. God, we repent of all of our sins. God, we pray that you strengthen us in these days, that you give us wisdom how to live. God, show us our blind spots. God, strengthen us where we are weak. Equip us to Fulfill the roles that you have given us. We pray for fathers and mothers and husbands and wives and children and families this day. God, we know that you uh, love the family, that you love marriage. God, that, that is your, your design for civilization. God, we pray that you strengthen our families, that you align our families biblically. God, under you, and that we are prepared for the coming days. God, we know that your judgment is imminent upon a, a nation that has spit in your face, that promotes things that you hate, that you call an abomination, that murders, God, your children. We ask for forgiveness of all of our sins, Father, and we come to the table with open hands, confessing our need for you. And we thank you for this day. In Jesus' name, amen.